If you have a Bible, please open it to the book of Romans. If you need one, you can obviously borrow it from the seats in front of you, and you can find the book of Romans and the passage that we will be speaking of here in just a moment on page 939 of that Bible. Last week, we heard Paul speak of his own authority in verses 1 through 7 of the first chapter of Romans. And I think that Paul spoke in this way because he needed to make sure that the Romans understood his authority. They were not founded by him. They had not up to this time been helped by Paul in any way, shape, or form. If they got the gospel without Paul, and if they were pursuing the faith without Paul, then why would they need Paul? Paul's answer that we talked about last week, is that he seems to be the authorized interpreter of the gospel for the Gentiles. He is the one who has been set aside by God for the gospel. He has been called by uh, God as an apostle and as a servant of Jesus Christ for the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he has authority over the Gentile churches, even if those churches were not founded by him, which is why he is writing to the Romans. Now, If you talk to people today, they will tend to get a little ruffled when we start to speak of authority. Frankly, this isn't without reason. We talked last week of Jacques Derrida only in passing to make a a little anecdote about his life, but he falls under a philosophy known as uh, postmodernism. And postmodernism has made a case strongly for the association of authority and control of people, and authority even in control of the truth is a tool of oppression in their view. So they seek to undo that oppression by undoing how people can speak of the truth and know the truth and have the truth. That is quite a boiled-down summary of it, but in essence, that's what they're claiming. And so they would see any claims to authority simply as a claim to power and a claim to power as a claim to be able to and rightly to oppress people. That oppression is typically violent and, for lack of a better word in their viewpoint wrong and worthy of being undone. Now, most people who are in the church, most pastors and academics who are truly devoted to Jesus Christ kind of blow off postmodern claims. They say that authority in its own is not necessarily linked to abuse. It's not necessarily linked to uh, these ideas of oppression Nevertheless, I think that there is something of a truth in what they're saying. Perhaps not in principle, but historically, they're not far off. We can find this even in Scripture. That as soon as we have claims of authority and claims to power within Scripture, they do indeed lead to the oppression of men and women. You might even think that these post Modern philosophers have actually read a bunch of Scripture. After all, this is what happened in the Exodus. Pharaoh thinks he's threatened by these Hebrew people and their growing numbers. So what does he do? He uses his authority and power to kill the male children, to oppress them by making them make bricks for him. This happens throughout the entirety of the book of Judges. They use the power that God has given them and the authority that God has given them for their good at others' expense. David himself Having traveled through the wilderness away from Saul for so many years, once placed in power, what is the first one of the first things that he does? He commits adultery. And then to cover up the adultery, he murders a very faithful and loyal subject. We see this in the remainder of the kings, who fulfilled the promise of abuse that was first given to them by the prophet Samuel when the people of Israel asked for a king. When they asked for a king, Samuel told them that this is what happens. 
When you give someone authority and you give them power, they're going to abuse you. Samuel said this in 1 Samuel 8. This will be the way of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen, some to plow his ground and some to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards. He will take your male servants and female servants. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Samuel says, you are going to give authority to this king. This king will abuse you and he will oppress you. It's not hard to see this dynamic in play everywhere. Where there is authority, there is power. Where there is power, there is oppression. This goes a long way to explaining a great swath of history from 19th century southern slavery to the Jim Crow laws to not just one but two world wars. So you could be forgiven as far as it goes and thinking that a number of these philosophers had been found reading their Bibles And on that basis, to be wary of any claim to authority, as Paul here is claiming authority. This does have one little problem with it, though. This is true, so long as sin reigns. But if these gentlemen had been reading their Bibles, they missed a rather large and important figure in the Bible, that of Jesus. Because when Jesus comes on the scene, he carries both authority and power But he does not abuse and he does not oppress. Rather, he uses it to liberate and to give people salvation. This is what is said at the beginning of his ministry. As he has gotten done with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew records these things. When Jesus Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching as one who had authority. And his authority is shortly seen not just in his having words to speak, but in his power, power over demons, power over diseases, over the wind and the waves, over matter itself. He's going to multiply fish and loaves over life and death. And amazingly, Paul says in verse 4 that we read last week that in his resurrection, he was appointed to be the Son of God in power. So whatever Jesus was before the resurrection, he is even more so now. Jesus shows up at the end of Matthew after showing all of his authority And he goes to a mountain in Galilee and he says, now all authority in heaven and earth has been given to us. And and you imagine the disciples say, whoa, whoa, did you not have all authority before? So when you were doing the wind and the wave thing and you were making fish and loaves, that was like partial authority? How much is he powerful now? How, How much can Jesus do now? But how does Jesus use that power and how does Jesus use that authority? Not to oppress Not to manipulate others for his own ends, but rather he uses his authority to lay down his life, to sacrifice himself for others. You see, authority is power. There's no getting around that. While claiming that he is the authority over meaning and interpretation of the cross of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, Paul is claiming power. Because he rightly understands that the authority to understand and to give the gospel to people is nothing less than the power of God. He speaks of his authority in verses 1 through 7. If you jump down past the section that we will be reading in just a a second, Paul says this in verse 16. 
I am not ashamed of the gospel, the gospel that he is authorized to explain to the Gentiles. I'm not ashamed of that, for it is the power of God. He knows that his authority is linked to power. But Paul understands all of the dynamics laid out above. He knows that power and authority go together, and he knows that it can be used to oppress, but he also knows that he has been called by one who didn't use his power and authority that way. Because he says it's not just the power of God, but it is the power of God for salvation. It is the power of God, as Pastor Richard read this morning, for a gift. So Paul, who serves in authority under the one who has ultimate authority, who has given his life, Paul can do no less but to give his life to see that authority played out. Indeed, Christianity is the very thing that defies this very notion of authority and power leading to oppression. As all men are sinners, and all humans are capable of incredible evil. So when you give them authority and you give them power, they use it for evil ends. But Jesus at his cross puts an end to such things. Richard Bauckham says this, The biblical story is a story of God's repeated choice of the dominated and the wretched the powerless, and the marginal. Jesus' obedience to the point of identification with the human condition at its most wretched and degraded, the death of the slave or the criminal, is what qualifies him to exercise the divine rule from the cosmic throne of God. Only the human who has thus identified himself irrevocably with the lowest of the low can be entrusted with the power that God exercises characteristically on their behalf, Distortion of the biblical story into an ideology of oppression has to suppress the biblical meaning of the cross. Once you see Jesus, no longer does authority and power lead to oppression. After all, it was Jesus himself who said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Paul claims authority. But after assuring us of his authority, after asserting his own authority, and even before he mentions his power in the gospel, Paul does something very important in these verses. He talks about his service to the churches and his love, especially for people that he has never met. Let us hear from the apostle himself about his heart for these Roman people. Let's read beginning in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is the word of our God. As we hear how Paul speaks of his heart for the Romans, let us first 
see that Paul's heart is seen in his prayers. Paul's heart is seen in his prayers in verses 8 through 10. Paul begins in verse 8 by saying first, which is a little bit of a false lead because you're never going to find a second in the text. Uh, he says that, but he never gets around to enumerating anything else. Uh, the idea here is that he's, he's kind of saying, before I begin, let me say this. I've got other things to say. The whole context seems to be pushing everything toward verse 13. Verse 13 is what Paul has to say. But even before he gets there, he's like, I, I need to say this first. The first thing that he says is that he regularly prays for the Romans in thanksgiving. He gives thanks for them. He gives thanks to God for the Romans. Because the world has heard about their faith, which is a very natural thing. Rome is the center of the world. To have the faith spread there before Paul could get there would be a natural thing. As Paul is spreading the gospel, these people would take the gospel, and many of them on natural occurrences would travel to Rome. As they traveled to Rome, they would share the gospel. Churches would be planted, and then as those people leave by the same roads, they would take the news of the Romans' faith out into the world. Now the amazing thing is, given how Paul is an authority over the Romans in these matters, specifically in how they handle and understand the gospel, it is amazing that he gives thanks for them rather than being threatened by it or concerned for them. It's easy to think why he would be threatened by faith outside of his preaching. After all, if the gospel can proceed without Paul, perhaps other congregations who are already having problems with Pauline authority might hear of the Romans' faith and say, if they don't need Paul to know of the gospel, if they don't need Paul to be growing in the faith, why do we need Paul? One can look over to 2 Corinthians and to look at the book of Galatians to see how Paul's authority has been unraveling in these places. Perhaps this would give them fodder. Perhaps it would come closer to having them sever ties with Paul. But Paul does not feel threatened by it. Instead, he thanks God for their faith. He sees it as the gift that it is, and he gives thanks to God who has given that gift. The very act of giving thanks to God is an act of saying that it is all from God. Their faith is nothing but a gift, and so he thanks the one who has given it. He doesn't just give thanks, though. He pleads for them. That word in verse 10 where he says, asking, that's a, a very soft way of interpreting that word. It can mean begging or pleading. Paul is, is on his knees asking that God would take him to Rome. And it's not a one-time fancy. It's not something that kind of flitted into his head and then moved out the other side. He regularly and always prays this way. He wants to come and see them. Paul's prayer will one day be answered. In the book of Acts, we find out that it is answered, not in the way that he probably wants to. Certainly, he wants to see them as a free man. He will not, at least not at first. But nevertheless, God will hear his prayer. Once there were three men. They would oftentimes meet for coffee and just regular conversation. They were good friends. The first of the three was regularly taken up with just wanting to talk about sports. The game that was on last night, the one that's coming up, he wanted to talk about strategies. He wanted to talk about lineups, bad calls, bad coaching decisions. This was kind of where he wanted the conversation to go and pretty much all he wanted the conversation to entail. The second oftentimes wanted the conversation to be there, but he couldn't help talking about his family and talking badly about his family, his wife and his kids. He just, he would say, yeah, I saw the game. Well, I, I would have seen all of it, but my wife was on me, you know, and I had to do things for the kids, you know, and so I couldn't watch the whole thing. You know how it goes, the same old story. 
third man does the same thing, but he talks in glowing terms about his wife and his kids. He says, well, I watched the majority of the game. I had to help the wife with some things out, but, but I, I was able to get away and to, to watch a little bit of the game, and she's happy to let me do that, and I got to watch it with my kids, and I answered their questions about what was going on, and we had a really good time. If you knew those three men, and you knew that this was kind of characteristic of their lives, which one would you say loved their family the most? Now, certainly, we could all think that there were other contravening factors. Perhaps the third is simply bragging about his family to make the other two feel worse. Perhaps the second one truly loves his wife, but they're going through just an incredibly difficult time in their marriage now, and he's not handling it well. Perhaps the first really does love his family. He's just a super private person. But even with all those caveats, I don't think that we're far off in suggesting that the third seems to, on the face of it, love his family the most. Jesus told us, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Paul says, I'm routinely praying for the Romans. I'm routinely begging God that I might come and see you. As he's going to say, so I could could give you things, so I could impart a gift to you. He is routinely thanking God for them. So friends, what is it that you speak of to the Lord when you speak of your brothers and sisters? Do you speak of them? Are they even on the tips of your tongue when you speak of them? Is what you say to God filled with thanksgiving? Is it filled with joy in your brothers and sisters in the Lord? Is it filled with a desire to see them, to impart a gift to them, to help them, to carry their burdens for them, a desire to bless them? Or when you think about brothers and sisters in the Lord, when you think about other Christians, is it simply filled with grumbling and consternation and contempt? And not just to God either. What is the tenor of your speech, just in general? Or perhaps we should say, more accurately, online. What is it that you write online? How do you speak online? Do you desire to see your brothers and sisters in the faith built up? Or do you find yourself just grumbling about the world around you, talking badly about people? Is that routinely how you speak online? Do you find yourself thanking God for what's around you? Or just droning on and on about how horrible the world and everyone else is? Paul's heart is seen in the way and the constancy with which he speaks of the Romans, these people that he's never met. He prays and thanks God continuously for them. He wants to come and see them, to be with them. He might be an authority over them, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't care about them and that he doesn't desire what is good for them. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus says this in Matthew 12, you brood of vipers talking to the Pharisees. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. The evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. Ask yourself, if we were to characterize you by your speech, are you characterized, as Jesus would say, bringing forth good treasures from the good or evil things from that which is evil? Paul's heart is seen in his prayers. And secondly, Paul's heart is seen in his purpose. Verses 11 and 12. 
Again, Paul's strong desires are on display. He says in verse 11, I long to see you. I yearn to see you. It's not a passing fancy. It is not just his dutiful checking in on people. He's not saying, well, listen, God appointed me to your area, and so I've got to check in on you, and then I've got to report back to the big guy. So this is just me calling in to make sure things are going okay. You guys doing okay? You need anything? Okay, well, get in touch with me if you need me. You know? He said, no, I want to come and see you. I, I really want to know you. I have long, often prayed to come and see you. He says that he's wanting to come so that he can de- impart a spiritual gift to them. A lot of people debate as to what this spiritual gift might be. They would turn back to the 12th chapter of Romans and they would say, well, Paul lists a number of spiritual gifts back there. He lists prophecy and service and teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership, mercy. Maybe this is what Paul wishes to impart to them. These are the kinds of spiritual gifts Paul wishes to give to them. But the problem is, then nowhere does Paul talk about those gifts coming from him. It's not his apostolic right to hand out gifts how he sees. He's going to talk in 1 Corinthians 12 about the fact that it is the Spirit that gives these things out. And you might long for the better gifts as Paul instructs them, but nevertheless, it is the Spirit of God that gives these out to the body as he wills. It's not Paul. Paul has no role in that. Paul can identify them, and Paul can talk about them, And Paul can instruct on the right use, but he cannot give them out. What is this gift that he wishes to impart to them then? I think it is likely simply what this letter says. The gift that he wishes to impart to them is the very thing that he has been sent to do, to explain to them the rigor of the gospel, to explain to them the beauty and the glory and the magnificence of the gospel of God how it relates to the promises that God has made in the Old Testament and what it means for them going forward. He desires to give them the spiritual teaching about the gift of the gospel in order to strengthen them. Friends, we do a lot, a lot of theological teaching, specifically in this church, and I'm not sure that many Christians actually like preaching like this. You listen to people that will say, well, it's, it's too academic or philosophical. Not necessarily my preaching, but preaching that is heavily theological. They'll, they'll say, this is no practical application for our lives. Listen, to skip over theology to get to application is the apex of foolishness. How can you know how God wants you to live if you don't know who God is? It's not that these people don't have theological convictions or that they don't have theology. They just have bad theological convictions. They have bad theology. Paul indeed does think that this vast undertaking of theology and the teaching of theology is important. Look at the book of Romans. We get 11 chapters of theology and four chapters of practically applying that. It's not that there's not practical application woven into it. There is. And it's not that there's not theology in the last several chapters. There is plenty of it. But generally speaking, we can break it down that way. It's clear that Paul thinks that theology is important. It carries through in almost every single book that he writes. You turn to the book of Galatians, four chapters of biblical exegesis, followed by two chapters of practical application. Same thing is found in the book of Ephesians, three chapters worth of theology and theologizing, followed by three chapters of practice. Paul doesn't waste time in giving us good theology. He doesn't expend himself for nothing or or have it go out in vain. 
It is all meant to strengthen us for our walk in the Lord. And nothing is going to strengthen you more in the world in which you live. Nothing helps you to navigate the difficulties of life and the ups and downs of life more than a deep understanding of the gospel. Paul is, if anything else, a good gardener. He deeply wants to till the soil that there might be a good harvest of fruit from what he plants. Theology, good theology, is meant to remove rocks and thorns and thistles from the land so that when growth comes, neither persecution nor times of struggle and problems in this life will thwart your growth in God. Paul says this is meant to lead to mutual encouragement. Paul is not above grace, as we talked about last week. He got apostleship and grace from God. So here, he is not above encouragement. Paul needed encouragement. Christian, if Paul needed encouragement, who saw the risen Christ blazing like the midday sun, I dare say you probably need encouragement as well. Paul gets encouragement from watching their faith, and they get encouragement from his faith. I can testify how much encouragement people can get from watching the faith of others. I've watched people go through difficult times. I've watched them grow in their love and their, their appreciation of what Jesus Christ has done for them. And their faith is an encouragement to me. It ought to be an encouragement for all of us. This is one of the great reasons why we should be as connected to one another as possible. It's not just that we help one another, but that we gain from that as well. We help to build one another up, to strengthen one another by repeating the gospel to one another, by living the gospel with one another, by proclaiming our faith to one another. This mutual building up provides great strength to the church of Jesus Christ and gives him glory. In all of this, we see Paul's heart for the Romans and his purposes for them. He wants to see them so that he might strengthen them in the gospel. His authority is not I'm going to get you guys fixed up right kind of gospel. His authority is not one where he's going to get them in line. His authority is one where he wants to give them the better and the best of gifts. He serves the Romans for their own good. And what's more, in God's beautiful way of working, what is good for the Romans is also good for Paul. And Paul benefits from it. He is mutually encouraged by them, which pushes him all the more to serve the people of God. Paul's heart is seen in his prayers and his purpose, and Paul's heart finally is seen in his plans. Paul desires for them to know that he has often intended to come and see them in verse 13. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often wanted to come to see you, but have been prevented. Again, he just, he can't get away from sounding so strong in his desire to want to come and see the Romans. It's important to note a couple of things off of simply that fact that he wants to go see the Romans. First, he's writing a letter to them. And that letter is not just any old letter. It is the very word of God. Paul puts himself in line with the prophets who wrote beforehand sacred scriptures. If he's doing that, the idea, I think, is that Paul understands that what he is writing is sacred scripture. And even though he is writing sacred scripture to them, he doesn't think that that is somehow a replacement for him being with them. Let us be reminded of that. Think of how much good this letter has done, both for the Romans and for the entire church throughout the history of the Christian church. 
2,000 years of help and good have come from this letter. And still, Paul would say, it would be better for me to be present with you. I talked to a gentleman this week who said that his pastor had really embraced during COVID and the difficulties that that churches have gone through all this online technology. And he posts videos and he posts sermons and he's, he's even gone kudos to the pastor. He's gone into the homes of elderly people who wouldn't know how to access these things otherwise and help them set it up so that they can see these things. I think that that's good. I think that it's, it's right and true in these, these times to find ways in which we can be present with one another. And it might be for good, but far too many churches have started to embrace that as sort of the new normal. This is just the way the world works now. We do everything online, so why shouldn't church be done online? As though all one needs is good teaching, but not real presence. Listen, presence is not some sort of negotiable quality now that we have technology. Videos, and videos with sermons on them, pale in comparison to Paul writing scripture and still saying, but it'd be great for me to be there with you. Clearly, Paul believes that presence is a vital and important part of the work of God for himself, and must be the same way for us. Paul obviously communicates himself well through the letter. It is penned through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Those who read it are led by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to understand it rightly, and yet even that does not make up for Paul's absence. Our presence with one another matters. And secondly, Paul's plans were likewise thwarted. Even with all of his authority, Even with all the good that God has given to him, Paul had made plans and they fell through. Paul had wanted to go and wasn't able to go. We don't know why he's been prevented. We don't know if he was prevented by normal human circumstances. The collection for Jerusalem was taking longer than he had expected. There was weather, there was want, who knows? The devil hindered him, we don't know. But he knows ultimately that it was not God's will that he go. So he he says that maybe now somehow I would succeed in coming to you by God's will. He knows that it's about God's will. That's why he prays for it. That's why it hasn't happened. This is a reminder to us of how fleeting our lives are. We're reminded of James when he says, hey, your life is but a mist. You should only wake up and say, I'm going to do this, this, or that, if the Lord wills. Ultimately, it is God's will that has kept him from them, not his lack of desire, not his lack of love. He wants to be there with them, that he might reap some sort of harvest from them. Not only to give and to receive some mutual encouragement from them, but to preach the gospel to those who have not heard. That he might win more to the Lord for the Roman churches. That they might build them up. So Paul makes his heart and the gospel known. It's not just for those that are there that Paul wants to come, but so that others might come to know the gospel as well. And why does he feel this way? Importantly, there in verse 14, he says, I am under obligation. W.C. Fields once says there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who divide the world into two kinds of people and those who don't. Paul is clearly that kind of person. Throughout the book of Romans, you're going to find that the world is divided into two kinds of people, most typically from a Jewish standpoint, Jew and Gentile. You're either Jewish and you belong to the line of Abraham or you're somebody else. You're Gentiles, and the Gentiles were just a collection of people. It didn't matter if you were from Ethiopia or you were from Spain or you were from India. You're all Gentiles to the Jews. But Paul, because he is now an apostle to the Gentiles, doesn't divide the world that way. 
Listen to how he divides the world. He says, to Greeks and to barbarians. He says, I'm obligated to all kinds of Gentiles, to those people who live in Rome who consider themselves Greeks, who consider themselves sophisticated and well put together, and to those barbarians who live in Spain and otherwise. I am, I am under obligation to them. I am in debt to them to proclaim the gospel to those who are wise and to those who are foolish. Wise because they believe in Greek philosophy, perhaps. Wise because they believe in the gospel, perhaps. But he's under obligation to them. Why does he feel like he's under obligation to them? Given the nature of who he is under obligation to, one cannot help but think of the fact that Christ has put him under authority and authority over the Gentiles. The obligation that he feels is because he is an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul's calling as an apostle does not just put him in authority over the Gentiles, but puts him under obligation to serve them. This is, by the way, the very point of all Christian authority. All Christian authority does not give one the power of lordship. It gives one the power to serve. Friends, please see the heart of Paul's plans. He has desired to go to the Romans. He has often tried because he feels obligated to those whom the Lord has placed under his authority. They're not here to serve Paul. The Corinthians made this mistake. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? He says, why are you saying you follow me? It doesn't mean that Paul's not in authority over them, but he's not in authority over them so that they will follow him. He is in authority so that they will follow his lead in following Christ. Imitate me, he will say later, as I imitate Christ. Paul is there not to get them to follow him, not to get them to do his will, but to serve them. In each part of our text today, as Paul seems to pour out his heart and tell the Romans how much he has longed to see them and how much good he wants for them, he has reminded them ever so subtly that all of that love comes under the condition of his apostleship. In verse 9, he reminds them that he is in a specific service to God, He says, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. He doesn't want them to think that he is just somebody who prays for them. He prays for them because he serves this God. He prays for them because he is their apostle. In verse 11, he says that I want to give you a spiritual gift. That spiritual gift is nothing less than the authorized version of the gospel in all of its entailments, in all of its richness, in all of its beauty. In verse 14, his obligation is linked to his appointment as the authorized explainer of the gospel. All of this prepares us to rightly read what Paul will say. Yes, he is an authority over us. Yes, he has commands placed upon us, but it is for our good. It is a service to us. Let this be continually in your mind this week. Because each of you will likely, at some point, find yourself in a position of authority whether it's authority in your house, over your children, as a husband to a wife. Perhaps it will be over employees or over teammates or just those who serve you at Walmart or when you go out to eat. You will be placed in a position of authority. Remember, as God's servant, you were never given authority to lord it over anyone. You were given authority to be able 
to serve them better. This makes us like Christ, who did not use his authority to force obedience or demand service, but gave his life as a ransom for many. Jesus easily could have come and said, what I demand from all of you is perfect and total obedience. But instead, he comes and gives his life as a ransom for many, that those who are far off and those who are near those who are wretched sinners tied down to the most righteous of us who is no better than a wretched sinner, to those who think well of themselves and those who think lowly of themselves might come to know the forgiveness of the cross of Jesus Christ. He has given himself as a sacrifice to put out the very wrath of God that hung over us so that we might be redeemed and to know this God, to have eternal life with him forever. How could we possibly then use our own authority to get our own good out of it? So, use your authority for the good of others. And I was reminded this week of how difficult a task this is. For me, especially. Maybe not especially, but I feel it for me, especially. One doesn't have to look very hard to find examples of pastors using authority for abuse. It's frankly easy to collect them, to draw them together, these sort of egregious examples of pastors abusing people under their authority simply because they are in positions of authority. It's easy to collect them. It's easy to to draw them in. It's easy to condemn these egregious examples of authority gone wrong. And at the same time, for those same pastors who would do that, for me, myself, to use my authority in unauthorized ways. The quality, the substance of the abuse can be very, very different, but the reality is not. Our flesh will always desire to use authority for our own good, for our own power, for our own reasons. But it was not given for those who wield it. It was given for those who are under it. Authority is given as a service to God. Authority given to pastors and to elders, to the elders of this church. Any authority that has been granted to me has been granted not for my own ends, but to serve the people of this church. So pray for us. Pray that your pastors and pray that I would be humble as Paul is humble. Using the authority that has been given to us, making sure that it is mixed well with our love, that we would use the authority to serve the good of the church. That as we often pray, not for our own demonstration of power, not for our own purposes, not for our own glory, we often pray with the beautiful purpose that these things would be for your good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, help us to see others through the eyes of Jesus Christ. Striving, as Paul says, to outdo one another in showing honor. We are certainly not naturally this way. I am not naturally this way. We all in our flesh see authority and power as something to use for our own advantage. Humble us, that we might be of service to your name through our service to one another, using any authority we might have for the good of our neighbors. We ask this 
for the good of your church and for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.